Gospel of Mark. I want you to imagine with me just for a minute that you're a Christian in the first century. It's AD 65, and you're living in Rome. Rome was the capital of the whole Roman Empire that was the world power at that time. And you would gather with other believers in Jesus, and you heard about the testimony of Jesus from people who had traveled to Jerusalem and on the day of Pentecost had been preached by Peter about the gospel, and they take that message eventually back home with them in Rome, and they start a church in Rome. You gather believers who believe your story that this Jesus who came was the Son of God, and it would be on a Sunday you would gather, and it would be not in a church because they didn't have buildings to gather Christians in at that point in time. In fact, at this point, in AD 65, you would be gathered oftentimes in secrecy. And in Rome, many Christians would meet actually under the streets of Rome in the catacombs. A catacomb is an underground burial place. I've seen uh, them myself in, in France where you crawl down under the temple or the building and you see just this, this continual walk paths and, and, and ways of bones everywhere. So you're gathered in a, in a big chamber with other Christians and you're, you're singing a, a hymn of songs and then you, you encourage one another with the gospel of Jesus about the good news of him coming. And you're standing among these bones that are decaying in this catacomb, and it's reminding you of the fate that you as a Christian in the first century of Rome are facing yourself. Because right now, Emperor Nero is on the throne of Rome, and he's a maniacal, wicked emperor. He is uh, probably paranoid and maybe has some mental health issues to the point where it's believed that he actually set fire to the city of Rome, starting with his own palace. And within days, the fire raged and 80% of the city of Rome was destroyed by fire. Many believe that Nero did that because he wanted to build his own city to his own honor. But when the suspicions were rising and fingers were pointing at Nero, he discovered it probably wasn't a good idea to have burnt the city of Rome, and people were now going to be mad at him and, and demanding for his life. So he conjures up a story that the fire was caused by these Christians, this anti-establishment, anti-government, anti-Rome religion that had been growing up out of Jerusalem and translated now here to Rome. And so Nero sent out armies to arrest Christians. And when they were discovered, they would be brutally treated. Many of them would have animal skins sewed on over their skin, and they would be tossed into the Colosseum and wild dogs would be released from the gates, and the dogs would think these were wild creatures who were going to kill them if the dogs didn't kill first. So the Christians were being attacked by wild dogs in the Colosseum. Other Christians were put onto a post after they'd been dipped in tar or pitch, and they were lit on fire and placed in the gardens around the king's or the emperor's palace gardens to light the night with Christians burning on a stake. Other Christians were put into the Colosseum and lions were released to devour them for sport, entertainment. This is what happened if you were a Christian in first century Rome. So imagine, if you would, with me, that you're gathering underneath the catacombs and you're noticing your numbers are beginning to dwindle because more and more of your Christian friends are now have been arrested and maybe they're currently lit, so to speak, 
on a stake or they're in the Colosseum and you're gathering and you're starting to ask some pretty deep questions because you haven't seen this Jesus firsthand. You've just heard stories that have come back from Jerusalem about Jesus rising from the dead and he was the son of God and forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit and you heard all these stories. And, but you begin to gather and you notice as you started counting the absence of your friends, you start going, okay, is this thing real? Is this real? Is this Jesus that we heard about who my friends are dying for and we're gathered here in secrecy and Nero's out to get us? Is this Jesus real? Or is he some kind of mythical fairy tale? Was he just a good teacher who died because of what he taught as a martyr for his own teaching? Was he really God? Because think about it, you're laying your life down for this news. But imagine one day as you're gathered, somebody comes and they have a new document. Perhaps it's a scroll. And they begin reading from the scroll the good news of Jesus the Messiah. You see, the gospel of Mark was the earliest gospel account we have in history, probably written shortly after Nero had set fire to Rome in AD 64. Many believe the gospel of Mark was probably written somewhere in 65 to 68, because Mark himself would die just a few years later, a martyr's death. Paul already had died, possibly. Peter had already died. And now we have Mark. And Mark's writing a testimony of Jesus to encourage the persecuted Christians, primarily in Rome, who are losing their lives for this gospel, because they want to know, is the testimony true? And so imagine that day when somebody comes and they began to read from a scroll written by an eyewitness of Jesus, Mark. Now, Mark, also called John Mark, wasn't one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, in fact, at the time of Jesus' life and ministry, especially when he moved toward his arrest and his, his betrayal and all that happening in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a glimpse of this, possibly this young character, John Mark, probably no more than a teenager, like some of our teens gathered here in the room right now. And he observed Jesus, he maybe even followed him, but wasn't named among the disciples, but he was a disciple of Peter. See, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter became a leader of the church, and he would teach, and he would preach like he did in the day of Pentecost, and, and he, as he preached and ministered, he would travel, and he needed travel companions. He needed an interpreter in some places that he would go, and so John Mark was that kind of a person who became a translator for Peter. So as he would hear Peter teach and preach about Jesus, then John would use all of those teachings, and he would write them down. And because Mark is writing this to the Roman community, it's written as a very brief explanation of what Jesus did, more than what Jesus said. And compared to Matthew, where we have long passages of Jesus' teaching, you're not going to find that in Mark, because Mark is a book of, it, of action. In fact, if, if you were to find Mark in Netflix, okay, so maybe you're looking for a movie, and you go to categories or genres, right, and you see docudrama, and you see music, and you see whatever, and you see action, that's where you're going to find Mark. You'd find, like, Matthew in documentary, Right? And you would find John probably under inspired uh, movies because that's, you know, that's what he's there to do. But Mark is like action, and it's all about Jesus doing more so than Jesus saying. And he addresses the issue of who Jesus is and the value and the validity of the testimony 
of who Jesus is, especially for these Christians in Rome who were dying for the gospel. Interestingly enough, John Mark actually is known in other parts of the New Testament. He became a traveling partner along with Barnabas, his cousin, of Paul, and joined Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. John Mark was part of that. He didn't make it all the way through the whole trip, and there's a whole different story there we don't have time to go into. It was also probably John Mark's home. His mother's name was Mary, and Mary opened her home to the early church in Jerusalem. So their house would have been kind of grand central station for the Christians in Jerusalem, like James and Peter. That's where they would have come and gathered and taught and met together. It was in his home. So this is a guy who lived right smack dab in the middle of the gospel of Jesus as a young teen and then seeing the growth of the church and the mission of the church. So I think John's a guy we can say, yeah, he probably knows what he's talking about. And indeed, all the early church fathers, the early scholars agree John wrote it and probably wrote it as the first gospel account we have in the scriptures. And so why is this important? Why do we want to spend time going into the gospel of Mark? Because we're going to discover that much like Rome in that day, when the Christian faith was not looked upon very highly, we live in a culture today where we as Christians want to know more about who our Jesus is and how we can live for him and act for him in a community, in a culture that becomes more and more progressively post-Christian, right? So we need this gospel for ourselves as well to understand really who Jesus is. So we're going to look at today the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the good news. So Mark, that's where we're going to be in the Bible, Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible but have your smart device, we encourage you to use it. You can use the YouVersion Bible app or go to albanync.org, and our message notes are available to you there under messages. You'll find it. But we're going to just, here's what we're going to do. I've never done this, to my knowledge, uh, as the pastor of this church, where we've gone through a gospel just kind of in its entirety. And we're going to let the gospel lead us where we're going. So we're going to start in Mark 1, we're going to end in 16, and we're going to be here a little while. So I hope you packed your lunch today because, no, we won't be here today a little while, but we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for a little while. We might take some breaks to attend to other things that come up, missionaries and so forth. We're going to be in Mark for a while. Uh, but I think it's good because sometimes it's good just to camp out in a Gospel and get a glimpse of Jesus because our world needs to see him in his body, the church, today. So Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, if you were going to write a story about Jesus, how would you start it? Once upon a time, you know, in a land far, far away, I mean, how would you start a story about Jesus? Mark just unloads in one very precise statement what he's going to spend the rest of this letter, his gospel, doing, unpacking the story, the good news about Jesus. And this one simple statement becomes the purpose statement of this crucial message about the life of Jesus all the way through the Gospel of Mark. And what is so cool about how he opens this is he borrows, if you will, from the Roman culture, his opening statement. Now, he wasn't plagiarizing, so we can't like say, Mark, that was bad what you did. You can't, do, you can't plagiarize somebody else's document. But let me explain. In, in, in the Roman culture especially, emperors were considered sons of God, and they were worshipped as gods, as deity. And they would have temples to worship the emperors, and they had a whole ritual of how you worshipped emperors. And what's interesting is that when Emperor Caesar Augustus 
was having a birthday, one of the scribes of the Roman community wrote this. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news. Do you hear Mark's statement right there in what he's saying about Augustus? And so Mark takes this very known statement, probably etched in some stone somewhere, that was attributing good news to an emperor. And Mark says, no, you got it all wrong. You're not going to find good news in in an emperor, uh, especially since they tend to not last very long. And they're moody. And culture and climate and government changes. You know, that's not where the good news is. And so he borrows from that phrase to a Roman population and says, no, Augustus is not that. Let me talk to you about the one who really is good news. In fact, he's just the beginning of good news. And I love that statement because beginning has so many parallels we don't have time to go into. But one of them is this. Mark was just beginning to share the good news. Do you know the good news is still going on today? Aren't you glad it wasn't like, well, here's a story about Jesus that happened, you know, for him, it'd be 30 years ago. I mean, what if he opened it like that, we'd go, oh, this is going to be a yawner. No, but this is the beginning of the good news, which means it is still in play today, friends. We are still partakers of the good news of Jesus who transforms lives even still today. But it also reminds us of the book of Genesis. How's it begin? In the beginning. How many know that God is a God of beginnings? And so we see in Genesis, a beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the Garden of Eden, places the man he created and the woman he created from man in this beautiful garden, and then things go wrong, right? I mean, it just by chapter three, we're just two chapters into the book, and boom, things fall apart. And sin comes into the world and corrupts the beginning of what God designed. So I love the fact that Mark picks up the echo of Genesis and says, okay, God is about to set things right again. He's beginning. But the beginning is not the powerful sign of creation. No, the beginning is actually God coming and being with man. This is the good news. And so he, he, he goes on to actually talk about that good news. And the good news, the word is gospel, all right? And that word, good news, would be a word commonly used, again, in the culture. It was kind of like when they would come back from war, a crier would shout, gospel. We had victory on the battle. And they would, they would share, this was a word they would commonly use. It was just news that was good. And it was often about reports from the battle and the success that was going on. And so here comes John, as we'll find out in the story, proclaiming good news, the gospel about Jesus, the good news that has come. In fact, Paul later talks to the same group of people, the Romans, about this good news. He says this, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, the Roman Christians would have a, a reason maybe to be ashamed because they were going to lose their own life over it. But Paul says, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Has that been a true gospel for you? Have you been a believer in the good news that Mark's going to write about it. John came to announce Jesus bringing good news, was breaking into our human experience. And when you think about what was happening in the context of, of Mark's writing, it did not look like good news, right? Christians are losing their life. Okay, where's the good news here, Mark? 
I just lost my great friend to the Colosseum, and he's been ripped apart by lions. Where's the good news here? The good news is not based in our circumstances, but the good news is based in a person that you can have a relationship with. And I have to think about, as I was studying for this, what good news am I trusting in? What good news are you trusting in? Is it really good news? Man, I know we're a people who want to hear good news, right? Sometimes we're placing our trust in news that is not this kind of good news. And then what you'll notice about Mark is he doesn't give a genealogy of Jesus. Now, how many of you, honest, be honest with me, when you get to Matthew, if you've ever read Matthew, you start Matthew and you go, why is there entire lists of names that I cannot pronounce? And so what do you do? You skip through it and you get to like, oh, there's Jesus. I know that name. We're going we're gonna, to, Jesus. Okay, that's where it's going to start for me. I'm going to start with Jesus. Well, that's what Mark does. He just starts with Jesus. And he skips the genealogy because what Mark is introducing for us is Jesus the servant. That is the theme of the gospel of Mark. Jesus came to serve. If you want to summarize Mark, the summary would be Jesus the servant king. Because he tells us himself, Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But don't mistake Jesus the servant for Jesus a wimp. Because Mark already induced for us the fact that this is Jesus the one true son of God, he alone is fully man Jesus, anointed one of God, Christ, and he's fully divine son of God. As Mark says that Jesus, the Messiah, your Bible might say Jesus Christ, the son of God. Jesus was his first name. Christ was not his last name. Christ was a title, all right? And it meant the anointed one, and the Hebrew word was Messiah, and that's where we get the one who was promised to come from God who would return the hearts of people back to God, the Messiah. So don't mistake his service for the fact of who he really is. Yes, he, I'm so glad he came to serve, but he is king as well as servant, right? In fact, what I love about what Mark does is he confronts you with Jesus at the very opening of his gospel. He says, this is what it's going to be about. And you, gotta, you either got to take it or leave it. There's no middle ground. There's no little, I'm going to add a little Jesus to my life and make it good. No, it's either he deserves your entire life and heart or nothing at all. There can't be a middle ground. That's how he starts it. So boldly he starts it. Verse 2, he goes on. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What Mark does is he borrows actually a couple of prophets, not just Isaiah, but he actually uses Malachi as well. And he kind of takes those two prophets and composes this one that he attributes to, to Isaiah. But Malachi was one of them. And in Malachi 3, 1 is the quote he pulls from. He says in Malachi 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. We're going to get into that in just a minute. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Isaiah, the part he borrowed was Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So here we have an introduction to the role John's going to play, John the Baptist. 
John steps up as the one who is going to prepare the way, the messenger who was sent ahead who will prepare your way. So God says, here's my messenger. It's John the Baptist, and he's going to introduce to us Jesus, the Messiah, who was coming. And what is really cool about how this worked in Roman culture is they would often have somebody who would be a front runner to an important person. In fact, if you've watched Aladdin, Disney's Aladdin, there's that point in the movie where Prince Ali is coming into town. And they have this great fanfare, make way for Prince Ali, right? I mean, they have this whole thing. And that's what would happen just culturally. If somebody important was coming, there would be a crier who would prepare the way. And that's what John exactly was doing, preparing the way for Jesus, who was coming, crying out. And what his preparation basically was, was repentance. If you want to make yourself ready for the coming of the Messiah, it's got to start with repentance. And so John preaches a message of repentance. Repent and be baptized. And so you saw in the video we watched where people would come to John and they would actually confess their sins and repent. We'll get there in in just a little bit. But part of also what he was to do was to make straight the paths or make ready the way for the Lord. And that was also commonly used when a king wanted to go from his palace out to visit uh, another location, a road crew would be dispatched ahead of the king. And what that road crew would do is they would prepare the roads. Because oftentimes in this culture, there was no pavement, right? The Romans started making highways with stones, but a lot of of the byways were just dirt and stone. And there would be slides, and so people have to come in and fill in ruts, and they would take away rocks and move debris, preparing the king for a smooth journey. John's doing that. He's coming in and he's removing spiritual debris, things that people have misunderstood about who God is, and he's preparing people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. Mark 1 verse 4, let's move on from there. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. I like the way it says, and John the Baptist appeared. Now, obviously, he was born. In fact, Luke 1 talks about the story of the birth of John to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He didn't just appear. He grew up, and then he eventually lived in the wilderness, which was always a symbol of God's judgment. You look at the wilderness in the book of the Old Testament. It was the wanderings in the wilderness was a sign of God's judgment and testing of the people of Israel. And so here we have John out in the wilderness And it's been 400 years, friends, since God spoke through a prophet. 400 years. No wonder the religion of the day has become corrupt. Everybody's focused on the law and the external application of the law, but inwardly their hearts are far from God. And and so it's been silent. So God speaks through John who acts as a prophet. And after 400 years, God breaks the silence through John who preaches a message of repentance and turning their hearts toward God. So he appeared. And in those four words, Mark sums up all of what Luke spent like a chapter and a half helping us understand about John. So I'll give you just a part of what Luke said about John. Luke 1, 16. He, John, will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, we know from looking at Luke, that John and Jesus were actually like distant cousins. So how could they grow up, you know, go to family reunions, and 
John not know he's the Messiah? Because John testifies later that he knew who the Messiah was when he saw the Holy Spirit come upon him, right? Well, chances are, how many of you think your cousin's the Messiah, right? I mean, come on, none of us think that way. Um, and, and so there would have been a lot of talk about Jesus, his miraculous birth. I mean, there'd be a lot of, hmm, I wonder, right? But you got to remember the situation when Jesus was born to an unwed woman, uh, a lot of things around the story sound scandalous. And so even among his own family, remember Jesus' own brothers didn't really believe who he was. So John, though he's a cousin, probably doesn't interact a lot with Jesus because John's hanging out in the desert. And he's preaching repentance. So what does it mean to repent? Repentance is a, is a two-way process. One, it's turning away from your sins, which I hope that you have done as you've come to Jesus. But the next step is equally important. To turn away from our sins, we have to turn to something, right? So we're turning to God and to his ways. That's repentance. You can't have just one part of it where you just feel bad about what you did and then go. It's turning away from your sin and yet turning toward God to live a life that pleases him. And so that's what John the Baptist would do. He would preach a message of repentance. In fact, we see it in Matthew chapter 3. We see what John preached. He said this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Has it? Absolutely. Jesus, Son of God, is here. The kingdom of God is now among us. And he's preaching this message of repentance. Turn away from your sin. Turn toward God. And then look at what happens in verse 5. The whole Judean countryside... And all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, which would be John, confessing their sins that were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So this is what it would look like. We would have people coming to John because he would preach this powerful message. And then they would repent and be baptized. What it would look like is they would come in like you saw in the video. They would come into the river, and then they would confess their sins. How many want to start doing that like now? Just come up, confess your sins right now, right? They would confess, repent of those sins, and then they would be baptized. And they would leave to live a life of righteousness before God. And that's the storing that John did. And he basically brought revival to the hearts of people who'd become disenfranchised with the Jewish religion of the day. Why? Because it says the whole Judean countryside came out. Mark, uh, John had a pretty big following here. And people even came from Jerusalem, which was like what? The Mecca of the Jewish faith. This is where the temple was. This is where the priests were. This is where supposedly God's presence was. But God's presence was no longer in that temple. God's presence was in a man, son of God, Jesus. So they leave 20 miles between Jerusalem and the Jordan River, 20 miles. That may not seem like much to us, right? It's like going to Salem. But people didn't pop by to see John on the way home from work. To get from Jerusalem to the Jordan River would take a couple of days or a good solid day of walking just to go hear a preacher. Why? Because the way he preached was with power. And there was excitement in the air because maybe this is that prophet that was foretold of like Elijah who would make way for the Messiah. So people came out to see Jesus in this very, or John, in this very powerful location, the Jordan River. You've heard about it, I'm sure, in some capacity, right? We see it in the Old Testament. It's the 
eastern boundary of Israel, the Jordan River. It's what the Israelites had crossed miraculously because the river was stopped up during its flood stage and they crossed over into their land of promise. And on the other side of the Jordan, they recommitted their covenant before God. They would be a people who would love God. Guess what the Israelites did? They broke that covenant, right? But isn't it pretty interesting that here we have John the Baptist standing on the shores of the Jordan, calling people to a renewed commitment, not to a covenant, but to God through repentance. And it's at that very strong landmark that he preached a renewal of commitment to God. And he looked kind of strange. Let's look at it. Verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Talk about itchy and stinky, right? And, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He must have been quite a sight to see. Some leftover bits of locust in his beard, honey kind of stuck, the locust leg is stuck to the honey in his beard, and he's preaching, and he's probably spitting because he had no microphone, so he had to talk loud, and he wore this hair that probably had fleas on it. I mean, imagine, they weren't drawn out to John the Baptist, who, by the way, wasn't Baptist. I'm pretty sure he was Pentecostal, but uh, he, he was preaching, and it wasn't his attire. He wasn't trendy. He wasn't the hipster pastor with the tight, skinny jeans preaching to masses of people with a big band and having these great Jesus gatherings out in the wilderness. No, nothing of him would have attracted people to him except the anointing of God was upon him to prepare people's hearts for Jesus. Roasted locusts. Doesn't that sound tasty? They would roast them. I mean, I think planters is missing a whole big piece here. Honey roasted locust. I think that could be a great camping food. But what it's basically a sign of is John lived in that wilderness. He pulled away to preach. He didn't go home in the evenings. Hi, honey, how's it going? Put his lunchbox down, sat with the kids, had some McDonald's, you know, whatever. He lived there, gave his life for one purpose, preparing people for Jesus. Friends, let me tell you, we have a little bit of a call of John the Baptist upon each of our lives, that we would be people committed to preparing the way for Jesus in the lives of others, removing obstacles by having conversations, talking about our own story, about how Jesus made a way into our life and how he can make a way into their life, and we're way makers for what Jesus wants to do, just like John. Now, I wouldn't recommend getting a camel suit. Of course, maybe some of you still, I know somebody in this room has a camel hair jacket in your, in your closet right now. I know you do. But it's not important. The important part is, are you a way maker for Jesus? To your people, to your friends, to your family. And this was his message. After me, verse 7, comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. What I love about this is John knows his place. He knows who he is. He is here to make way for somebody else. But think about it, just for a minute, think about it. You have thousands coming out to you, traveling 20 miles to see you. Wouldn't it be tempting to let that kind of go to your head and become a world-renowned teacher, communicator, author? Maybe get a boy band that would open for you and you would speak about Jesus coming and all your talk would be about Jesus coming but never really giving Jesus his place. John could have done that. He could have said, it's all about me. Look at people are coming out to me. But he knew his place. And when Jesus was coming, he knew the place that he should take. Look at it in John 3. 
Because they believed, some believed that, that John was the Messiah because of the power and he spoke with and the prophetic voice he had. But look, in John 3, 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of you. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. What's happening? In this context, Jesus is becoming popular now. John did his job. He made the way for Jesus. And folks, some of his friends are going, well, hey, hey, wait a minute. What about you, John? He's like, look, this is my role. It's about him. I must become less so that he gets center stage. John knew his place. I'm preparing the way for Jesus. And he uses this wonderful word picture, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Think with me. People who walked everywhere they went, what would their sandals and feet look like by the end of the day? Pretty disgusting, kind of like some of you when you go to summer camp or go camping and you're wearing your flip-flops the whole time and you go finally back to the trailer and it's like, what is that on your feet? Some hot dogs, some ketchup, some sand, some mud, some dog feces. I mean, you've got a little bit of everything, right? So what would happen is when you would come home, the lowest slave or the youngest household member would remove the sandals of the father's feet and wash their feet. And John's saying, he's so great, I'm not even worthy to do that. The lowest servant job of all. He knew his place. Friends, do we know our place in relation to Jesus? Is he all that to you? Or has he just simply become an additive to make a better life for you? He demands absolute authority over our life as Lord. And that's who he was for John. He goes on, verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, kind of like what you see us do on a baptism Sunday here. We know that water baptism is symbolic. It doesn't save you. It symbolizes dying to your old way of living, your sin, right, and rising to newness of life, turning your focus toward following Jesus on God's way for your life. And so that's very symbolic, and that's all John did. His, his baptism was symbolic. It didn't save people, but it prepared their hearts. It stirred up an interest in the one who would come, who would be the Savior, and would do far more than just baptize with water, which Jesus didn't do in his ministry. I mean, some say he did. It was his disciples that baptized. But Jesus came to baptize us with something else. The book of Acts actually talks about. We see Jesus telling his disciples, look, Acts chapter 1, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift of my Father. He talked about the Holy Spirit coming with power to be witnesses. In Acts 2, we see the day of Pentecost come, and Peter preaches. And in that passage, he uses an Old Testament passage. If you have the notes, I don't have time to go there right now, but in the Old Testament, it spoke in Ezekiel and in Joel about the coming of the Holy Spirit, not just to be around us, but to be in us to write God's truth in our hearts and how we need that Holy Spirit. And John's whole point was, Jesus is coming and he's bringing you salvation. And that salvation in Jesus also brings into your life a filling of the Holy Spirit that will help you to walk in God's way. In fact, that's the good news of this whole first section of Mark. The good news is that Jesus, Son of God, came to forgive our sins and to fill us with his Holy Spirit. That's part of the beginning of the good news that can be true for you today. And then in verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. 
I look at that passage and I've had people ask me, why did Jesus get baptized? Right? I mean, if it's about repenting and confessing sin and turning toward God, I mean, why would Jesus need to do that? He's the son of God. He's perfect. He hadn't sinned. Why would he need baptism? I'll just give you a couple summary statements of why. I believe, first of all, that what Jesus was doing was identifying with sinful man. You know why that was important? Because Jesus was going to bear the sins of all mankind on him at the cross of Calvary. So he humbled himself, like Philippians 2 talks about, he humbled himself and identified with sinful men. And he came before John to be baptized. He also did it as an example for us to follow. And that's why we still baptize today, recognizing the work Jesus did for us. But I think there's something else to hear too. I think that for Jesus to launch into his public ministry, which he does shortly after his baptism, there's a part of repentance he is doing. He is turning completely his focus and his life to his father. Up to this point, what was Jesus doing? Probably a carpenter. We have no public teachings of Jesus yet. We have no miracles that were actually biblical. We have no testimony about Jesus up to this point. But now it's starting. And so he comes to launch his ministry, turning his full attention toward his father's plan, which ultimately is to bear that sin everybody else is confessing to John and being baptized. Let's move on, verse 10. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. I I wish I could have been there that day. We don't know who saw what and who heard what. But I'll tell you what, what I see here is this over Jesus, the sky completely opening. Not like like a few clouds kind of moving and this kind of burst of sunlight coming down. What I see is the heavens rending and opening up. Guess when the next time that's going to happen? At the coming of Jesus. And so in that moment, heaven opens above Jesus. And it's almost like God is saying, here I am. My throne, my, my position, my place, my presence is with you. Here he is, Jesus, the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. It's a symbolic anointing of Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit who would now minister by that power. In fact, he says that in Luke 4. He's reading from the scroll of the prophet, the spirit, it's prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. And so this Holy Spirit comes and anoints Jesus and it, it lights upon him. And then we hear this voice of the Father. Verse 11, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I mean, I want you to get this for a second. Jesus hasn't done anything ministry-wise yet. No miracles, no preaching, no healing the lame, no raising the dead. He's done nothing except a carpenter faithfully to his parents in Nazareth. But the Father God speaks over him and says, this is my son who I love. My favor is on him. What does that tell me? God's favor rested upon Jesus before he did anything for his father, except come as a a baby. What what takeaway is there for for us? Through Jesus, we are co-heirs. We are sons and daughters of God. And how many know that you have spent maybe a good deal of your time trying to earn God's favor through doing stuff for him? And here we have Jesus didn't do anything yet. 
And God says, I love him. I'm pleased with him. Here's the good news. The good news is this. God the Father loves you and his favor rests on you right now. If you're in relationship through Jesus Christ, his son, his favor rests on you. No matter what you do or don't do, his favor rests on you. Now, because of that, we want to favor him in return. I want to live a life that's worthy of that kind of love lavished on me, that kind of favor poured out on me. But through Christ, when God looks at you, he says, you're my son, you're my daughter, whom I am well pleased. I love you. That's what the Father is saying to you. So if you're hearing anything different, it's a lie. And that is not coming from the Spirit of God within you. Quickly, I'll let us, last two verses, and we're done for today. Mark 1.12. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. I mean, talk about flipping the switch, right? He goes from, oh, heaven opening. I, env I envision an angelic choir. I'm not sure why. It just sounds good. Oh. And then, then here's the Holy Spirit and Jesus and Father saying, I love you. Right from that moment. There's no like, oh, I got to go back, grab some bags. No, he goes right from the River Jordan to the wilderness, compelled by the Spirit, which tells me something. The Holy Spirit will often bring us to places that don't make a lot of sense to us, that may even be difficult, but it's a place of testing and trial. He spends 40 days. That number is symbolic in so many ways. The, the 40 days of the flood that we see in the Old Testament, the number 40 is a sign of, of really of, of judgment, okay? And then in the wilderness is that place of testing where the Israelites were tested by God in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? There's that number again, right? So here's Jesus taken out into the wilderness where there's wild animals, and he's tempted not just three times like the Gospels show us three accounts. They just give us three accounts. But he is tempted. He's isolated. He's alone. Nobody is with him except for the angels who attend to him and the wild animals he has to fend off right? What a contrasting difference from the Garden of Eden. The last big temptation showcased was Genesis chapter 3. Where was Adam and Eve? Plush garden, surrounded by trees, fruits, tamed animals that they named. And one serpent comes into this beautiful, picturesque, they have everything they need, and raises a question about the goodness of God, and they fall for it and they sin. So now we have a contrasting story. Jesus going into a place of brokenness and wildness, symbolic of our sins, right? And it's in there. He's isolated. He doesn't have somebody with him. He doesn't have fruit trees abounding. He's hungry, and it's there that he's tempted. And what if he failed there? What if he gave in to temptation there? Then it would be the end of the story. The good news would be God loved us. He sent a son, but he wasn't quite good enough. That doesn't sound like good news. But he faces the enemy, strong with the word of God, to defend against the temptation. And he comes out of that wilderness, attended by the angels. You know, I think this is interesting that Mark uses these words, wild animals. Because what's happening to the Christians in Rome? At the writing of this gospel, what's happening? They're being fed to wild animals and the angels attended them. What a picture of hope for those that lost friends to lions or wild dogs to know that they weren't alone in those moments. Angels attended them. There's stories of Christians being martyred in, the, in Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
and they're singing as they're being ripped apart. They're singing praise to God. How do you get that when you know the good news of Jesus and his presence at work in your life and the hope that overcomes all hopes? That's how you do that. But Jesus also shows us something. He can say to us, you know what? I know what it's like to be tempted. I mean, I know his time stamp is different than ours, but he would say, you know what? I know what it's like to have the world thrown in front of you and the pleasures of this world thrown in front of you like you have on the internet. You're one click away from giving into your sin. I know what it feels like to be tempted with the passions of this world. But I know that my God is with me. And his word in me gives me power over temptation. He can say, I know what it's like to be accused of not being who I am and being told, well, if you are the son of God, throw yourself, prove yourself. I know what it's like to feel like my identity is bound in something that I do and trying to find myself there, but don't. Isn't it cool that we have a savior who went through temptation, horrific temptation, to say, I can identify with you. I know what it feels like. In fact, Hebrews picks it up, Hebrews 2, for this reason. He had to be made like him, them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I love those two words. Merciful, he knows what it's like. And in his mercy, he will help you. He's faithful, right? High priest in service of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. And he is able to help those then who are being tempted. Here's the good news. Jesus understands our temptation and will help us when tempted. That's the gospel of Mark 1 to 13 in three movements. What good news do you need today? Let's close our eyes and think about that for a minute. Do you need the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, came to forgive your sins and to fill you with the Holy Spirit that you might live rightly before God? That's where it's got to start. For, for everybody in the room, they got to start there. Or maybe you need the good news that the Father loves you and his favor rests on you no matter what because you're a child of his by believing in his son, Jesus. Or maybe you need the good news that he understands your temptation because, man, you feel it right now. You are tempted beyond the ability you think to bear. But here's the good news. He is help for you if we will turn to him in our temptation. What good news do you need to hear today? And I think we bring that back to him and say, Jesus, thank you that you are all of that and so much more. Thank you that you're my Savior. And right now, if you're here in this room and he's not, this is your moment. This is your moment to say, Jesus, I need you. My life feels like nothing but bad news on bad news, and I need a Savior today. If that's you, just raise your hand and say, Kelly, that's, that's me. I need that kind of good news in my life. My life is broken. It's a hot mess, but I need the grace of Jesus over my life today. Anybody I can pray with about that today, just raise a hand and say, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else before we move from this moment? I know our time's up, but hey, let's hang here for a minute because God's up to something. Anybody else? I need a Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you know exactly what's going on in our lives right now. And thank you that every time we turn to you, 
and we confess our sins and we ask for your forgiveness, which we will do right now, that you hear us and you say yes. That's what you came here for. That's the good news. We would know you in that kind of way as our Savior. So God, I pray right now, in these quiet moments, that we would confess our need of you. Jesus, I need you. I need you in my life. I need the forgiveness that comes through repentance, recognizing the way I'm living is not working for me or my relationship with you. I'm going to turn away from that and turn toward you instead. Thank you that you received me as your child, Father, and now you look on me with favor and you love me with an unconditional, never-ending kind of love. And now because of that, you also are with me when I face temptation tomorrow. Maybe some are here today and saying, Kelly, man, I'm going through temptation after temptation and it's hard to stand strong and I've given up and I've fallen so many times. Will he forgive me? Yes, he can stand with you. But you need to look to him in your moments of temptation because the flesh desires that which is contrary to the spirit of God. That's why he will give you the strength. Corinthians talks about how he will give you a way of escape. That's what he does by the Holy Spirit within you. So God, I pray right now, all of us have been tempted. All of us. And we know that you're a help for us. And this week, there will be people who will face that same temptation again that they have yielded to consistently. But Lord, I pray this week would be different because they recognize their own power won't give them the victory, but your power in them by the Holy Spirit will. And they can stand in the face of temptation because you died so that power of sin would be broken over our lives. We don't have to yield. Though our flesh cries out, our spirit does not have to yield. So give us that strength inside our hearts to live for you righteously in the face of temptation. That's the good news you came to bring. Let's live in it. In Jesus' name, amen. 